If you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. And you'll see that we're going to cover the rest of 35 in chapters 36 this morning. But for the reading, we will just read verses 9 through 15. Verses 9 through 15, Genesis 35, starting in verse 9. Hear God's word. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So reads God's word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this is your word, Father. We cannot understand, we cannot even comprehend unless you enlighten our hearts with your Holy Spirit. So I ask that you would send forth your word and your glorious power to accomplish your will here in the hearts of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and that you would change us from this time forth and for all eternity. We ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, so far in our intermittent journey, um, Lord willing, it won't be quite so intermittent for January and February, at least. We'll try to get through as much of this as we can. Uh, at least that's our plan, if the Lord is gracious to us. But we have covered 34 and part of the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. These 34 chapters cover a period of just over 2,000 years. I know it seemed like a long time since we started this, but it hasn't been 2,000 years. This covers a period of 2,000 years. From creation all the way uh, through the flood uh, and down through the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, and now here, Jacob. Last year, we weren't in this book since last year, right? Uh, last year, and our last sermon, I believe, was in November. Uh, we covered chapter 34, which we called the dark years, where God had not spoke to Jacob. And we know the, the story of the, the violence and the, uh, the defilement of Jacob's daughter by the, uh, a young man in the town of Shechem, a young man by the name of Shechem. Um, and then how Dinah's brothers, uh, Simeon and Levi, uh, exacted their revenge not just by killing this young man Shechem, but by killing every man in the town of Shechem. And then, of course, the rest of the brothers joined in and pillaged the town. And, of course, that didn't uh, sit well with Jacob. And uh, he tried to scold the brothers, but they wouldn't listen to him. And then God speaks 
at the beginning of chapter 35 and commands Jacob to go back to Bethel. That's where God had met with Jacob when he had fled from Esau, his brother, some 20 plus years earlier. And we see Jacob obeying. He cleanses and sanctifies and purifies his family. They get rid of their idols and, and all that. And then they, they go back to Bethel and he sets up an altar and, and they once again worship God. Chapter 35 opens with these words. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And we see in the first eight verses, seven verses of 35 where Jacob obeys. In our passage today, we will be drawing one section to a close. You know, Genesis, it has what they call the todah. If I said that right, it's a Hebrew word. What it is is genealogies, okay? And each section usually ends with a genealogy and opens with a genealogy. And we've seen just as when Abraham died, we were given the genealogies of his sons, right? First Ishmael and then Isaac. But the genealogy of Isaac was primarily about Jacob. And then this genealogy is drawing up for Isaac is drawing to a close in our section here today where it will give us the genealogy of Esau. And then it will give us the genealogy of Jacob, which opens the next section, which will primarily be about not Jacob, but Joseph. And so we see how these patterns flow throughout, especially the patriarch, the patriarchal section of this book. So when we get to the end of 36, we'll be closing Isaac's genealogy and, and, and opening up Jacob or Israel's genealogy. As this section winds to a close, we will see the covenant promises of God under attack by sin and death, starting with the death of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. The author writes, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alonbeka. We are not told how or when Rebecca's nurse Deborah, and this is the only time her name is given, because uh, back a few chapters ago when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac, and Rebecca agrees to go with the servant, we're just told, and her nurse went with her. Well, this is her nurse. Some Bible scholars say she's probably around 180 here. We're not given that. We don't know. That's just, um, I guess, sanctified guessing. <laughs> However, she is now part of Jacob's household. We don't know why she's part of Jacob's household. Maybe she was the one, speculation again, that brought uh, Jacob the news of his mother's death. And we're not even told when Rebecca died. However, from Scripture, we get the idea that once Jacob fled from his brother Esau, he never saw his mother again alive, okay, which uh, may have been God's frowning providence due to her part in the deception. We don't know this, but we know that Deborah, her nurse, is now part of Jacob's household. If you weren't here in Sunday school, you should have been here for Bible study because we're discussing family. So now Deborah is part of this extended family of Jacob's. And so she dies and is buried. And we know this is a 
by what Jacob names the place Oak of Weeping, we know that this loss of, of Deborah affected him. It wasn't just, oh, well, she was old, she's, she's gone now, but it, it really affected him. That was one of his last links that he had to his mother. Uh, and we know from previous chapters, uh, Esau was Isaac's favorite. However, Jacob was Rebecca's favorite. So he had this, uh, uh, he was a mommy's boy. He had this uh, bond with his mother. It is my hope and prayer that we will continue to see the power of God in this passage. You know, there's a lot of dark things in this passage, just like chapter 34. But I want us to see the power of God in all that. This is not just historic narrative, but throughout historic narrative in the Bible, we're able to see, I hope, we're able to see the God's plan of redemption being worked out uh, through his people, through saints and sinners alike by the power of Almighty God. I pray that he will strengthen our faith as we witness his power and, and as we witness him keeping his promises. You know, that's one thing our faith is based on, is it not? The promises of God. And when we can look in scriptures, even the Old Testament, and see God keeping his promises, that, strength, that should strengthen our faith, knowing that God will and does. And always keep his promises. His plan of redemption is alive and well and working, regardless of the faithlessness of his people, regardless of the weaknesses and the sins of his people. His plan will prevail. And so we come to our passage. Our passage opens in verse 9 with God appearing to Jacob. Now he spoke with Jacob at the beginning of chapter 35. Here it says he appeared to Jacob. We don't know exactly how he appeared, whether it was a dream, like the first time he was at Bethel. Remember the, the, the ladder and the angels ascending and descending and God at the top, right? Jacob's dream, what we call it Jacob's ladder. Actually, it was God's ladder. <laughs> we don't know if it was a dream or if it was a theophany, if it was like the man who appeared to Jacob when he was wrestling at Penuel. We, we're not told, but we are told that God appeared to Jacob. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Remember, God had told him that, that the man whom Jacob was wrestling with at Penuel had told him this. It renamed him, and, and Jacob realized this was God and given him a new name. However, in the, in the time since then, we have not seen him called Israel. Uh, and we get the idea because through those dark years, uh, maybe there was a lack of proper worship for whatever reason. And so God here now is reiterating Israel's, Jacob's name change here. The name Israel means God prevails and will not only be Jacob's new name, but will also be the designation by which his posterity will be known, his physical and spiritual posterity. For we now are the true Israel of God, are we not, as God's people? Interestingly, when Jacob was wrestling with God, he begged this divine being to reveal his name. 
But Jacob doesn't have to beg God to reveal his name here because God is going to voluntarily reveal himself. And he uses the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. And it's interesting when God reveals names about himself in the context that he's revealing himself. He's revealing his name as God Almighty in the context of promises. In the context of covenant promises, which should tell Jacob what? God can keep his promises. He's almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent. This is the same name that God had used with Abram back in chapter 17. I am God almighty. What God is saying to Israel is that he, God almighty, can and will keep his promises by his great and unstoppable power. Now, we as human beings make promises, do we not? But there are many things that can happen to cause us to, no matter how sincere our promises are, there are things that can cause us beyond the scope of our power to keep our promises, right? I don't know about you, but I feel bad when I'm unable to keep a promise. I feel even worse when I just don't do it for whatever reason. But there are many things that can stop us from keeping our promises. Nothing, nothing in all of creation can stop God Almighty from keeping his covenant promises. Not sin, not death, as we will see in this passage today. The omnipotence of God would later cause King Nebuchadnezzar to say of God, He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And this great testimony of God's omnipotence came from the lips of a pagan king, an idolatrous pagan king, whom God humbled. We know that story, right? Made him crawl on his hands and knees and eat grass like an ox for a period of time until he was humbled. And after that, this is his great declaration of of God. Nobody can stay his hand. And I think this, this omnipotence of God, this wonderful, powerful God that describes himself as God Almighty, lends itself to the words of Jesus to Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God Almighty is building his church as we see today, and it's still being built. His kingdom still advances. The gates of hell cannot stop it, both in this life and in the next. And so this is the God who is meeting with Jacob and changing his name. God reiterates his covenant promises in verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Reiterating these covenant promises that he had made with Abraham and that he had made, he had then extended to Isaac, and he's now extending them to Jacob. This command 
we talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school and Bible study. This command, be fruitful and multiply, echoes that of God's creation mandate to Adam and Eve, does it not? And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28. We also heard this command again after the flood. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9.1. What mandate is that? That's a creation ordinance, but it's also what? A societal mandate? And so God tells this to Jacob. Now, Jacob already has 13 kids, right? Well, he's only got 12 at this point. We, we're getting ahead of ourselves. He's got 11 sons and one daughter, right? And, but, so this command is not necessarily to Jacob, but to Jacob's offspring to be fruitful and multiply. God says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. But the first part, that's easy. We know that from the Bible. A company, I mean, a nation. Well, the nation of Israel. What does he mean by a company of nations? Now, now we could say that of Abraham, right? Because of Ishmael and because of his other sons that he had after Sarah's death with, with his concubine, right? We could say that even of Isaac. We'll see in chapter 36, the, the nation that Esau becomes. But what company of nations is God saying of Israel? You might argue, well, he's talking about the divided kingdom. I, would, I wouldn't argue that. I mean, that could be it. But I, I'm submitting to you that this company of nations are the people that we read about in Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth revelation 5 9 and 10 I submit to you this company of nations is God's people from all walks of life from every country that the gospel has been taken to and that's a, a, a promise of God not just for a physical nation but for a spiritual nation. That's a messianic prophecy right there. Because how do we get this spiritual nation? Through Christ, the king of this nation, which God is going to reference in the very next sentence. And kings shall come from your own body. A king that is a direct descendant of Israel will not only reign over the nation of Israel, but will reign over the company of nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. The king shall come from your own body. This, this began to be fulfilled, starting with Saul, because Saul was an Israelite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Very quickly, though, uh, God snatched the kingdom away from him and gave it to David. And so fulfilling this promise, uh, hey, kings will come from your own body. But then, as I just said, this is even a more in-depth messianic prophecy 
because we know David's greater son, Jesus of Nazareth, is still reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is still reigning over this company of nations and will for all eternity, as we read in just Revelation chapter 5. And we are and will reign with him. So what is Israel's response? Now I say Israel, we always think of the nation of Israel. I'm speaking of the man Jacob here. Israel as a man, not as the nation. What is his response to these promises of God, to this appearance of God? He sets up a pillar and pours out a drink offering and oil on it as an act of worship. In other words, he sets up this little pillar as an altar so that he can worship this God Almighty that has revealed himself to him, that has appeared to him, that has made these wonderful promises to him, to his posterity. He promises him the land, you know, where he's at, where Abraham had sojourned, where his father Isaac is shows sojourning still, and where he is living. He promises this land. And so Israel worships, and he reiterates the name of the place as Bethel. Remember back in a few chapters ago what what the name Bethel means? House of God. House of God. God met with him. You know, we call this the house of God. We are the household of God. Why? Because when we come together for corporate worship, we believe God meets with us. God Almighty meets with us. It is only proper, dear ones, to respond to God's promises and blessings with worship. It is only proper to respond to God's promises and blessings with worship. As we read during the call to worship, praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above all the earth and heaven. Psalm 148, 13. Now, we'll let you on a little secret. This right here is the high point of this chapter. It's going to take a nosedive from here. But at least we have this pinnacle here, of God appearing to Jacob, changing his name, giving these great and glorious promises that are not just promises to Isaac, I mean to Jacob, but they're promises to us as well. And Jacob responding, Israel responding with a proper response, responding with worship. And then we come to verse 16, which is a particular Verses 16 through 20, which is a particular harsh blow in the frowning providence of God to to Israel. And we see the following. Frowning providence of God mixed with blessing. Rachel, you know, her struggle with having children. She, for the longest time, didn't have children. She finally had Joseph. And now she's about to give 
her husband, his second son, from her. However, she's in very hard labor, and consequently she dies giving birth to her son. As she's dying, Rachel is reassured by whoever's attending her that she's having a son. And with her last breath, she names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. You know, we saw a pattern a few chapters ago when, when these different wives and concubines were having sons. We saw the pattern that they named their sons. And she's following that pattern by naming her son. However, this is the first time of all of Jacob's sons that he steps in and changes that pattern. They had named their own sons. Now he steps in and renames his son. Doesn't call him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, but calls him Benjamin, son of the right hand. Now there's arguments about that, why he would name him that, son of the, the it could, could be translated son of the land, you know, where they were at. Um, now this is an argument that all Bibles, a lot of Bible scholars just, I think, go way off in the weeds about. You know, he was the only one that was born in the promised land. I just think it's Jacob's designation of the place of honor, as the right hand is the place of honor. And, of course, this was the son of his favorite wife. And so we read, Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is here to this day. And that was a dark period in Jacob's life, the loss of a loved one. Now, we think, I believe that this loss, Rachel's death, triggers the next section that we're going to read about, which is an equally dark section, but heinous. You know, we can't. Uh, we, we think death is heinous, right? I mean, it's, a, it's an evil enemy. Uh, but this next section is an, an evil action. Remember in chapter 34, there was a great sexual sin that took place. And we see that again here, but this time it's not from outside the family. But it's internal. It's from inside the family. <laughs> Curiously, as soon as in this section, as soon as the author describes what takes place, he only devotes very little time to this. Then he immediately gives a list of the sons of Israel. And I think that ties in with it. After the death of Rachel, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went in and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Was Reuben's action simply pure lust? Or was it an attempted coup? Do you think of it like that? Most of us just say, that was just a, this young man was just full of lust and he just went and did this evil thing, you know, spare the moment. Most Bible scholars agree that it was an attempt to take Jacob's place as the patriarch of the family. Why would Reuben not wait for Jacob's death? Speculation is made that because of Jacob's weak reaction to the rape of Dinah, 
followed by his unsuccessful attempt to chastise Simon and Levi for the Shechem massacre, Reuben was emboldened to take this action. <clears throat> Once again, Israel or Jacob does not seek to punish this sin. Just as he was silent in chapter 34 with the, the assault on his daughter, so now he's silent here. It says he knew of it or he heard of it. Doesn't give us any indication that he did anything about it. He will later, in chapter 49, we'll see this. It is also suggested because Jacob's <clears throat> favorite wife, which was Rachel, because she had died, Reuben, by defiling her handmaid Bilhah, was ensuring that his own mother Leah would not lose her newfound place of prominence in the family. Now, in their culture, in their day, having more than one wife was not adultery. Um, God allowed it to happen, okay? But nowhere in Scripture, when we see polygamy practice, do we see a happy family. I will reiterate that. Nowhere in Scripture where we see polygamy practiced, where we see a happy family. There's always trouble. And this trouble started out at the very beginning when Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah rather than the one he wanted to marry. And, and Jacob always held that against Leah and played favorites with Rachel and her children. And so Reuben is trying to say, no, my mother is now the chief primary wife in this family. Now, why would, why would they even consider Bilhah as a concubine taking that position? Well, he might have thought because she belonged to Jacob's favorite wife. Whatever reason, I believe it was an attempt for Reuben to usurp his father's authority. And he did so by uh, this, this evil sexual sin. He was wanting to become the leader of the family. And we'll see by this very action that family leadership was denied to him. We'll see that in chapter 49. We as Christians are always to avoid sexual sin. It is never, ever permissible for we as Christians to engage and sexual immorality within or without the bounds of marriage. How do I know this? Because God's word says this. First Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God. Whose will? Man's will? My will? No. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. What does that have to do with this? that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-5. through five. We are always to avoid 
dear ones, sexual immorality. There are a lot of sins that you can commit that you can rebound from. But sexual morality, if you defile your marriage bed, you can come back from that, but it will never be the same. Look at King David. He committed adultery. He lied about it. He committed murder. He was affronted. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And then he repented, right? And all was well. No. His kingdom was never the same. His family life was never the same again. He lost that child. Uh, His daughter was raped by her half-brother Amnon, who was then killed by her brother Absalom, who then uh, disdained his dad to the point where he chased David out of Jerusalem and tried to take over the kingdom and then was killed in the ensuing battle. How was David's, David's life never got back to the place it was before he committed that sin? You know, the Bible tells us that every sin a man commits is outside the body, but sexual sin is committed against what? The body. We ought to keep that in mind, dear ones. Reuben committed a grave sin here. And for that, we'll be passed over for the patriarchal blessing later on in life. But interesting now, the author goes right into the the naming the sons here. He names, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram, except for Benjamin, who was born in the land of Canaan. Because of the event just recorded, Reuben defiling Bilhah, Moses, who is writing to the newly formed nation of Israel, rehearses for them the 12 sons of Jacob, and they are not listed necessarily in their birth order but they are listed in order of prominence as far as the firstborn and then Jacob's preference. Kenneth Matthews writes, the listing of Jacob's 12 sons at this point in the narrative fits the context of the conclusion. The new focus will be on the son's rivalry in the Joseph narrative. Listing the sons by their mother provides the background for the rivalry between the Rachel children, Joseph and Benjamin, and the other children, especially those born to Leah. Special recognition of Reuben as the firstborn corresponds with the narrative interest in the Bilhah incident just recorded, end quote. There's a purpose for the way this is all written and and, and given to us. A lot of times it's hard to read through these historical narratives and say, man, what's going on here? Why do we have to know all this? Right? Well, what is this? This takes place within the covenant community of God. Okay? And so we, we say, well, 
we don't think Reuben can be the one that the Messiah will come from. I mean, look at how vile he is. Well, later on in this very book, we will see <laughs> the one who the covenant line comes through is, is immoral as well. See, God is able to make his plans go forth regardless of the faithlessness and the sins of his people. There's, a, there's also a, a change here that we see take place in the covenant community. You see, with Abraham, even before him, Abraham had brothers, right? But, but Abraham was singled out. Then Abraham had two primary sons and then other sons, right? But Isaac was signaled out. And then Isaac had two sons, but Jacob was singled out. Now Jacob has 12 sons. Now, yes, one will be singled out with the Messianic line, but the rest will be included permanently in the covenant community. Now, of course, Ishmael was part of the covenant community for a while until he was banished. Esau was part of the covenant community until he became an adult and and spurned his birthright and, and, and goes his own way. But now it's not just one son that will be the, the, the progenitor of the covenant community, but that one son, Jacob, is. And so all of his sons are part of the covenant community now. And so for the rest of the, the Old Testament, by and large, it will be about Jacob's sons as the covenant community of God in good times and in bad. Even though at the end, there's just a remnant. And to end this chapter, we have recorded for us Jacob and his move to uh, Hebron, where uh, Abraham and Isaac had sojourned, and he's reunited with his father just prior to his father's death. We read, Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Jacob is finally reunited with his father. Just before Isaac's death, just as was said of Abraham at his death, so now it is said of Isaac, he was old and full of days. In other words, he had lived a long and prosperous life. God had truly blessed him and had been faithful to keep his promises to Isaac. And that Esau and Jacob are recorded here as peacefully burying their father. That's further proof that the reconciliation that took place a couple chapters ago was a lasting reconciliation, at least during their lifetime. Now, we'll see later on uh, when, when Esau's lineage is mentioned again after the Exodus that the, the friendliness is, is not there any longer. And, and will be a constant battle between these two nations. Um, for the entire history of Israel. And as we learned earlier in this series, Herod, the one that tried to kill baby Jesus, was a descendant of Esau. And so that even tells you that battle even continued and continued, whether it was on purpose or not. You know, whether it was, well, he's a Jew and I'm not. We know that that took place. And then we come to chapter 36. Now, we're not going to sit here and rehearse all these names 
of all of Esau's descendants. Um, just as Ishmael, his descendants were named, uh, so too we're not we're not going to hear much about Ishmael unless we hear about the Ishmaelites uh, and the rest of this book, the ones who purchased, of course, uh, Joseph. And we're not going to hear anything more about Esau in this book, and probably not even till later on in Exodus or maybe even um, uh, Numbers Deuteronomy when they're passing through or passing by the land of Edom. And so we bring this section to a close with these genealogies. We're starting a new genealogy now. We're starting the genealogy of Jacob, which will be the Joseph narratives. But in this, you say, why did Moses record for us the, the descendants of Esau? What's that telling us? Well, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. To Abram, remember what God said? Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Not only his sons, but his grandsons and his great-grandsons, they would be different nations. And, and so we see Moses telling us, yes, Esau became a nation, and, and kings came from him, right? So that's also a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God promised Isaac, and the Lord appeared to him and said the same night, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so even in the unbelieving children, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham to give him many descendants. Now we know those many descendants are not just physical descendants but primarily spiritual descendants. Not all who call Abraham father are of Israel, right? As the apostle Paul would tell us. So in summary, we, we have seen in this passage today that God is all-powerful, and as such, nothing can thwart his divine plans. When God Almighty makes promises, nothing can stop him from keeping them, and keep them he does. Even though God's chosen people are still plagued with sin and death, God's purposes prevail. Because of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, we are not consumed, even though we still sin. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3.6. What a promise. What a statement. We deserve to be destroyed. We deserve to be consumed. But because God is faithful, because he has made these covenant promises, we are not. And that leads us to the words of God's faithfulness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This El Shaddai, God Almighty, has promised to do that because of his faithfulness. We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. However, God is not just an angry God. He is a just and loving God too. We all deserve hell, but God sent his only begotten son to live and die in the place of sinners. He perfectly obeyed God on our behalf, and then he died to pay the price for our sins 
Jesus did not stay dead, however, but was raised to life for our justification. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Again, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just as the proper response to God's promises and blessings is worship, so the proper response to the gospel is repentance and faith. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will save you. Dear saints, as we approach the Lord's table in just a moment, let us quietly acknowledge our ever-present need of the Savior. Let us confess our sins to God in faith, knowing that we are forgiven in Christ because of what he has accomplished for us with his broken body and his shed blood. In the words of the hymn writer, Complete in thee, no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned bought for me, and I am now complete in thee. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for even for the hard-to-understand passages. Thank you for giving us not only examples of what to do and what not to do in Scripture, but thank you for showing us your mighty power and your faithfulness to us despite ourselves. Help us now look to Christ in a new and glorious way, seeing that in him we are complete. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. Thank you for his glorious resurrection and and ascension. And Father, thank you that he now, even now, makes intercession for us. For we pray these things in his holy name. Amen.